Section 42 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1b, Section 42 chapter nineteen part three the king of england had before the death of the duke of burgundy profited extremely by the distractions of france and was daily making a considerable progress in normandy he had taken rouen after an obstinate siege he had made himself master of pontoise and guizors he had even threatened paris and by the terror of his arms had obliged the court to remove to Troy, and in the midst of his successes he was agreeably surprised to find his enemies, instead of combining against him for their mutual defence, disposed to rush into his arms and to make him the instrument of their vengeance upon each other. A league was immediately concluded at Arras between him and the Duke of Burgundy. This prince, without stipulating anything for himself except the prosecution of his father's murder and the marriage of the Duke of Bedford with his sister, was willing to sacrifice the kingdom to Henry's ambition, and he agreed to every demand made by that monarch. In order to finish this astonishing treaty, which was to transfer the crown of France to a stranger, Henry went to Troy, accompanied by his brothers, the Dukes of Clarence and Gloucester, and was there met by the Duke of Burgundy. The imbecility into which Charles had fallen made him incapable of seeing anything but through the eyes of those who attended him, as they, on their part, saw everything through the medium of their passions. The treaty, being already concerted among the parties, was immediately drawn and signed and ratified. Henry's will seemed to be a law throughout the whole negotiation. Nothing was attended to but his advantages. The principal articles of the treaty were that Henry should espouse the Princess Catherine, that King Charles during his lifetime should enjoy the title and dignity of King of France that Henry should be declared and acknowledged heir of the monarchy, and be entrusted with the present administration of the government, that that kingdom should pass to his heirs-general, and that France and England should forever be united under one king, but should still retain their several usages, customs, and privileges, that all the princes, peers, vassals, and communities of France should swear that they would both adhere to the future succession of Henry, and pay him present obedience as regent, that this prince should unite his arms to those of King Charles and the Duke of Burgundy, in order to subdue the adherents of Charles, the pretended Dauphin, and that these three princes should make no peace or truce with him but by common consent and agreement. Such was the tenor of this famous treaty, a treaty which, as nothing but the most violent animosity could dictate it, so nothing but the power of the sword could carry into execution. It is hard to say whether its consequence, had it taken effect, 
would have proven more pernicious to England or to France. It must have reduced the former kingdom to the rank of a province. It would have entirely disjointed the succession of the latter, and have brought on the destruction of every descendant of the royal family, as the houses of Orléans, Anjou, Alençon, Brittany, Bourbon, and of Burgundy itself, whose titles were preferable to that of the English princes, would on that account have been exposed to perpetual jealousy and persecution from the sovereign. There was even a palpable deficiency in Henry's claim, which no art could palliate, for, besides the insuperable objections to which Edward III's pretensions were exposed, he was not heir to that monarch. If female succession were admitted, the right had devolved on the house of Mortimer, allowing that Richard II was a tyrant, and that Henry IV's merits in deposing him were so great towards the English as to justify the nation in placing him on the throne. Richard had nowise offended France, and his rival had merited nothing of that kingdom. It could not possibly be pretended that if the crown of France was becoming an appendage to that of England, and that a prince who by any means got possession of the latter was, without further question, entitled to the former, so that, on the whole, it must be allowed that Henry's claim to France was, if possible, still more unintelligible than the title by which his father had mounted the throne of England. But though all these considerations were overlooked, amidst the hurry of passion by which the courts of France and Burgundy were actuated, they would necessarily revive during times of more tranquillity, and it behoved Henry to push his present advantages, and allow men no leisure for reason or reflection. In a few days after, he espoused the Princess Catherine. He carried his father-in-law to Paris, and put him in possession of that capital. He obtained from the Parliament and the three estates a ratification of the Treaty of Troy, he supported the Duke of Burgundy in procuring a sentence against the murderers of his father, and he immediately turned his arms with success against the adherents of the Dauphin, who, as soon as he heard of the Treaty of Troy, took on him the style and authority of regent, and appealed to God and his sword for the maintenance of his title. The first place that Henry subdued was Sans, which opened its gates after a slight resistance. With the same facility, he made himself master of Montereau. The defence of Melun was more obstinate. Barbassin, the governor, held out for the space of four months against the besiegers, and it was famine alone which obliged him to capitulate. Henry stipulated to spare the lives of all the garrison, except such as were accomplices in the murder of the Duke of Burgundy, and as Barbassan himself was suspected to be of the number, his punishment was demanded by Philip. But the king had the generosity to intercede for him, and to prevent his execution. The necessity of providing supplies both of men and money obliged Henry to go over to England, and he left the Duke of Exeter, his uncle, governor of Paris, during his absence. The authority which naturally attends success 
procured from the English Parliament a subsidy of a fifteenth. But if we may judge by the scantiness of the supply, the nation was nowise sanguine on their king's victories, and in proportion as the prospect of their union with France became nearer, they began to open their eyes, and to see the dangerous consequences with which that event must necessarily be attended. It was fortunate for Henry that he had other resources, besides pecuniary supplies from his native subjects. The provinces which he had already conquered maintained his troops, and the hopes of further advantages allured to his standard all men of ambitious spirits in England, who desired to signalize themselves by arms. He levied a new army of twenty-four thousand archers and four thousand horsemen, and marched them to Dover, the place of rendezvous. Everything had remained in tranquillity at Paris under the Duke of Exeter, but there had happened in another quarter of the kingdom a misfortune which hastened the king's embarkation. The detention of the young king of Scots in England had hitherto proved advantageous to Henry, and by keeping the regent in awe, had preserved, during the whole course of the French war, the northern frontier in tranquillity. But when intelligence arrived in Scotland of the progress made by Henry, and the near prospect of his succession to the crown of France, the nation was alarmed, and foresaw their own inevitable ruin, if the subjection of their ally left them to combat alone a victorious enemy, who was already so much superior in power and riches. The regent entered into the same views, and though he declined an open rupture with England, he permitted a body of seven thousand Scots, under the command of the Earl of Buchan, his second son, to be transported into France for the service of the Dauphin. To render this aid ineffectual, Henry had, in his former expedition, carried over the King of Scots, whom he obliged to send orders to his countrymen to leave the French service. But the Scottish general replied that he would obey no commands which came from a king in captivity, and that a prince, while in the hands of his enemy, was nowise entitled to authority. These troops, therefore, continued still to act under the Earl of Buchan, and were employed by the Dauphin to oppose the progress of the Duke of Clarence in Anjou. The two armies encountered at Borges. The English were defeated. The duke himself was slain by Sir Alan Swinton, a Scotch knight who commanded a company of men-at-arms, and the earls of Somerset, Dorset, and Huntingdon were taken prisoners. This was the first action that turned the tide of success against the English, and the Dauphin, that he might both attach the Scot to his service, and reward the valour and conduct of the Earl of Buchan, honoured that nobleman with the office of constable. But the arrival of the King of England with so considerable an army was more than sufficient to repair this loss. Henry was received at Paris with great expressions of joy, so obstinate were the prejudices of the people, and he immediately conducted his army to Chartres, which had long been besieged by the Dauphin, that prince raised the siege on the approach of the English, 
and being resolved to decline a battle, he retired with his army. Henry made himself master of Drow without a blow. He laid siege to Meaux at the solicitation of the Parisians, who were much incommoded by the garrison of that place. This enterprise employed the English arms during the space of eight months. The bastard of Vauroux, governor of Meaux, distinguished himself by an obstinate defence, but was at last obliged to surrender at discretion. The cruelty of this officer was equal to his bravery. He was accustomed to hang, without distinction, all the English and Burgundians who fell into his hands, and Henry, in revenge of his barbarity, ordered him immediately to be hanged on the same tree which he had made the instrument of his inhuman executions. This success was followed by the surrender of many other places in the neighbourhood of Paris, which held for the Dauphin. That prince was chased beyond the Loire, and he almost totally abandoned all the northern provinces. He was even pursued into the south by the united arms of the English and Burgundians, and threatened with total destruction. Notwithstanding the bravery and fidelity of his captains, he saw himself unequal to his enemies in the field, and found it necessary to temporize and to avoid all hazardous actions with a rival who had gained so much the ascendant over him, and to crown all the other prosperities of Henry, his queen was delivered of a son who was called by his father's name, and whose birth was celebrated by rejoicings no less pompous and no less sincere at Paris than at London. The infant prince seemed to be universally regarded as the future heir of both monarchies. But the glory of Henry, when it had nearly reached the summit, was stopped short by the hand of nature, and all his mighty projects vanished into smoke. He was seized with a fistula, a malady which the surgeons at that time had not skill enough to cure, and he was at last sensible that his distemper was mortal, and that his end was approaching. He sent for his brother the Duke of Bedford, the Earl of Warwick, and a few noblemen more, whom he had honoured with his friendship, and he delivered to them, in great tranquillity, his last will with regard to the government of his kingdom and family. He entreated them to continue towards his infant son the same fidelity and attachment which they had always professed to himself during his lifetime, and which had been cemented by so many mutual good offices. He expressed his indifference on the approach of death, and though he regretted that he must leave unfinished a work so happily begun, he declared himself confident that the final acquisition of France would be the effect of their prudence and valour. He left the regency of that kingdom to his elder brother, the Duke of Bedford, that of England to his younger, the Duke of Gloucester, and the care of his son's person to the Earl of Warwick. He recommended to all of them a great attention to maintain the friendship of the Duke of Burgundy, and advised them never to give liberty to the French princes taken at Azincourt till his son were of age and could himself hold the reins of government 
and he conjured them if the success of their arms should not enable them to place young henry on the throne of france never at least to make peace with that kingdom unless the enemy by the cession of normandy and its annexation to the crown of england made compensation for all the hazard and expense of his enterprise he next applied himself to his devotions and ordered his chaplain to recite the seven penitential psalms when that passage of the fifty-first psalm was read build thou the walls of jerusalem he interrupted the chaplain and declared his serious intention after he should have fully subdued france to conduct a crusade against the infidels and recover possession of the holy land so ingenious are men in deceiving themselves that henry forgot in those moments all the blood spilt by his ambition and received comfort from this late and feeble resolve which as the mode of these enterprises was now past he certainly would never have carried into execution he expired in the thirty-fourth year of his age and the tenth of his reign this prince possessed many eminent virtues and if we give indulgence to ambition in a monarch or rank it as the vulgar are inclined to do among his virtues they were unstained by any considerable blemish his abilities appeared equally in the cabinet and in the field the boldness of his enterprises was no less remarkable than his personal valour in conducting them he had the talent of attaching his friends by affability and of gaining his enemies by address and clemency the english dazzled by the lustre of his character still more than by that of his victories were reconciled to the defects in his title the french almost forgot that he was an enemy and his care in maintaining justice in his civil administration and preserving discipline in his armies made some amends to both nations for the calamities inseparable from those wars in which his short reign was almost entirely occupied that he could forgive the earl of marsh who had a better title to the crown than himself is a sure indication of his magnanimity and that the earl relied so entirely on his friendship is no less a proof of his established character for candour and sincerity there remain in history few instances of such mutual trust and still fewer where neither party found reason to repent it the exterior figure of this great prince as well as his deportment was engaging his stature was somewhat above the middle size his countenance beautiful his limbs genteel and slender but full of vigour and he excelled in all warlike and manly exercises he left by his queen catherine of france only one son not full nine months old whose misfortunes in the course of his life surpassed all the glories and successes of his father in less than two months after henry's death charles the sixth of france his father-in-law terminated his unhappy life he had for several years possessed only the appearance of royal authority yet was this mere appearance of considerable advantage to the english 
and divided the duty and affections of the French between them and the Dauphin. This prince was proclaimed and crowned King of France at Poictiers by the name of Charles the Seventh. Reims, the place where this ceremony is usually performed, was at that time in the hands of his enemies. Catherine of France, Henry's widow, married soon after his death a Welsh gentleman, Sir Owen Tudor, said to be descended from the ancient princes of that country. She bore him two sons, Edmund and Jasper, of whom the eldest was created Earl of Richmond, the second Earl of Pembroke, the family of Tudor, first raised to distinction by this alliance, mounted afterwards the throne of England. The long schism which had divided the Latin church for nearly forty years was finally terminated in this reign by the Council of Constance, which deposed the Pope, John the Twenty-Third, for his crimes, and elected Martin the Fifth in his place, who was acknowledged by almost all the kingdoms of Europe. This great and unusual act of authority in the Council gave the Roman pontiffs ever after a mortal antipathy to those assemblies, the same jealousy which had long prevailed in most European countries between the civil aristocracy and monarchy, now also took place between these powers in the ecclesiastical body. But the great separation of the bishops in the several states and the difficulty of assembling them gave the Pope a mighty advantage, and made it more easy for him to centre all the powers of the hierarchy in his own person. The cruelty and treachery which attended the punishment of John Huss and Jerome of Prague, the unhappy disciplines of Wycliffe, who in violation of a safe conduct were burned alive for their errors by the Council of Constance, prove this melancholy truth, that toleration is none of the virtues of priests in any form of ecclesiastical government. But as the English nation had little or no concern in these great transactions, we are here the more concise in relating them. The first commission of array which we meet with was issued in this reign. The military part of the feudal system, which was the most essential circumstance of it, was entirely dissolved, and could no longer serve for the defence of the kingdom. Henry, therefore, when he went to France in 1415, empowered certain commissioners to take in each county a review of all the freemen able to bear arms, to divide them into companies, and to keep them in readiness for resisting an enemy. This was the era when the feudal militia in England gave place to one which was perhaps still less orderly and regular. We have an authentic and exact account of the ordinary revenue of the crown during this reign, and it amounts to only fifty-five thousand seven hundred and fourteen pounds ten shillings and ten pence a year. This is nearly the same with the revenue of Henry the Third, and the kings of England had neither become much richer nor poorer in the course of so many years. The ordinary expense of the government amounted to forty-two thousand five hundred and seven pounds sixteen shillings and ten pence so that the king had a surplus only of thirteen thousand two hundred and six pounds fourteen shillings 
for the support of his household, for his wardrobe, for the expense of embassies and other articles. The sum was nowise sufficient. He was therefore obliged to have frequent recourse to parliamentary supplies, and was thus, even in time of peace, not altogether independent of his people. But wars were attended with a great expense, which neither the prince's ordinary revenue nor the extraordinary supplies were able to bear, and the sovereign was always reduced to many miserable shifts, in order to make any tolerable figure in them. He commonly borrowed money from all quarters. He pawned his jewels, and sometimes the crown itself. He ran in arrears to his army, and he was often obliged, notwithstanding all these expedients, to stop in the midst of his career of victory, and to grant truces to the enemy. The high pay which was given to soldiers agreed very ill with this low income. All the extraordinary supplies granted by Parliament to Henry during the course of his reign were only seven-tenths and fifteenths, about two hundred and three thousand pounds. It is easy to compute how soon this money must be exhausted by armies of twenty-four thousand archers and six thousand horse, when each archer had six pence a day, and each horseman two shillings. The most splendid success proved commonly fruitless when supported by so poor a revenue, and the debts and difficulties which the king thereby incurred made him pay dear for his victories. The civil administration, likewise, even in time of peace, could never be very regular, where the government was so ill-enabled to support itself. Henry, till within a year of his death, owed debts which he had contracted when Prince of Wales. It was in vain that the Parliament pretended to restrain him from arbitrary practices when he was reduced to such necessities though the right of levying purveyance, for instance, had been expressly guarded against by the Great Charter itself, and was frequently complained of by the Commons, it was found absolutely impractical to abolish it, and the Parliament at length, submitting to it as a legal prerogative, contented themselves with enacting laws to limit and confine it. The Duke of Gloucester, in the reign of Richard the Second possessed a revenue of sixty thousand crowns, about thirty thousand pounds a year of our present money, as we learn from Foisard, and was consequently richer than the king himself, if all circumstances be duly considered. It is remarkable that the city of Calais alone was an annual expense to the crown of nineteen thousand one hundred and nineteen pounds, that is, above a third of the common charge of the government in time of peace. This fortress was of no use to the defence of England, and only gave that kingdom an inlet to annoy France. Ireland cost two thousand pounds a year, over and above its own revenue, which was certainly very low. Everything conspires to give us a very mean idea of the state of Europe in those ages. From the most early times till the reign of Edward the Third, the denomination of money had never been altered. A pound sterling was still a pound troy, that is, above three pounds of our present money. That conqueror was the first that innovated in this important article. In the twentieth of his reign, 
he coined twenty-two shillings from a pound troy. In his twenty-seventh year he coined twenty-five shillings. But Henry V, who was also a conqueror, raised still farther the denomination, and counted thirty shillings from a pound troy. His revenue, therefore, must have been about one hundred and ten thousand pounds of our present money, and by the cheapness of provisions was equivalent to above three hundred and thirty thousand pounds. None of the princes of the House of Lancaster ventured to impose taxes without consent of Parliament. Their doubtful or bad title became so far of advantage to the Constitution. The rule was then fixed, and could not safely be broken afterwards, even by more absolute princes. End of section 42, chapter 19, part 3.